He sees someone on the throne. God's throne is a place of transcendence. It's high and exalted with power and authority, majesty and honour, perfect justice, sovereignty, holiness, praise, purity, grace and eternal life. If you see his throne, you've seen the highest office in the universe. You can't go higher than the throne of Christ. The buck stops there. So he's seeing a vision and he's seeing God and what would you do? You just fall on your face. You just fall on your face. And when you read of the visions from the prophets, Isaiah and, and Daniel and Ezekiel, they fall on their face. They fall down before him. Because, you know, you realize just how fragile and frail you are. You're really held together by Jesus Christ. You know, it's not, we're, we're, this is not us doing it ourselves. This is God keeping everyone alive. Every single person, whether they believe in Jesus or not, they're held together by Jesus Christ. And at a moment, there's a, a scripture where it says the silver cord could be um, severed. I think it's in Proverbs or Psalms, Proverbs. Proverbs. And uh, if they, that silver cord just read, um, severed, that's it. That's it. No recourse. You go, you know, you go to either be with your Lord Jesus or your Lord Satan, whichever one you you served. And so when you come to the throne of God, this is no small thing. This is a powerful, powerful thing. And that's why there's so much description of it here. There's a thing around going at the moment called that people say, I'm, I'm a little Jesus. No, you're not a little Jesus. Who's heard that term? Yeah. There was a, a, quite a few people speak about that we've become little Jesuses. That's talking about becoming godlike or becoming a god. We can't become little Jesus. That's the whole concept of the New Age, which is Christ consciousness. A lot of churches, a lot of Christian churches are using this terminology. No, we don't become little Jesuses um, because that means we're deifying ourselves. We become like, we try to become like Jesus, don't we? We want to be like him, but we can't become him as he is. That's the teaching of Mormonism, by the way. Yeah, you can actually become Jesus, just like Jesus became a God. And God the Father was ahead of him and he became a God. And, and so God is the God of this galaxy and there's other gods in other galaxies. That's Mormonism. So when they say they're Christian, just laugh. Say, Sorry. No. There's only one Elohim. So we're going to be doing a, a sermon today. Uh, it's part 26 of the Revelation series, and we're up to chapter 4, because if you were here last week, we finished um, the churches. I sort of powered it through and got through to the end, which was unlike me to sort of get something like that done. So, um, and hopefully we're going to get through a few verses of uh, Revelation 4 today. Yes. Now, just before we read Revelation 4, turn there in your Bibles. Um, I'm just going to talk about uh, Revelation in a nutshell. This sort of occurred to me just the other other day, and I sort of wrote it, and I sort of tried to categorise the chapters or parts of chapters into four distinct areas, um, and it can help you see the book of Revelation a lot clearer, um, because a lot of people think, oh, the book of Revelation is all symbology and uh, you know allegorical and stuff, and we can't understand it. And, it can, it's up for so much interpretation and all this sort of thing. 
Uh, it's not quite that cut and dry. It's not like that. So I've sort of sectioned it off into, this is the first section, the Lord revealed in glory or heavenly scene. So it's where angels are around the throne and they're singing praises to his name and, and so on. And, and in these scenes, a lot of the book of Revelation is that. It's, yeah. it's just scenes. It's just descriptions of what's taking place in heaven. And it's, uh, so if you want to take a photo of this when all the screen is up, uh, Revelation 1, uh, 9 to 20 is when Jesus is standing amongst the lampstands and he's, you know, feet like burnished bronze and hair white like wool and eyes blazing fire. So that, that's one scene. Revelation 4, which is what we're doing today, is a scene in heaven. Revelation 5 continues that same scene. 4 and 5 really are, are one sort of continuous scene. Actually, 4, 5 and 6, when it goes into the seals, it's a continuous scene. He gets up to heaven, gets before the throne, and then he watches things take place. They transpire before his eyes. Uh, Revelation 7, 9 to 17 is another section. Revelation 19. Now, from Revelation 19 onwards, 20, 21 and 22, these are all... Heavenly scenes and the earth, heaven and earth becoming one and the judgment and, and so on. There's all things taking place in heaven. The, when you read the, these scenes, it's pretty cut and dry. You know, it's not a huge amount of interpretations, even though people do interpret. But it is what it is. Do you know what I mean? I saw angels standing around the throne. You know, I saw 24 elders throwing their thrones down saying, you know, glory to the king sort of thing. So you're seeing all these scenes. So that's a good portion of Revelation right there, isn't it? Then there were the epistles. And the epistles really are exhortations and rebukes to churches. Revelation 1, verse 1 to A is, if you read the very opening passage, it's to the churches. So the whole book was written to the church. Um, Revelation 2 and 3 are the other epistles. Alright, so that's just writings, just like a letter of Paul or a letter of Peter, but it's from Jesus Christ himself. So, go back to there. Just take a photo of that if you want that. You can check, check this out. Uh, the judgments and seals, trumpets and bowls. Now, seals, trumpets and bowls, there's, there's a lot of talk uh, to do with that, a lot of teaching and a lot of stuff, but they, these are the judgments of God. Um, Revelation 6 um, is where, where that starts. That's relation to the seals. Uh, Revelation 7, verses 1 to 8, also references that. Then we have Revelation 8, which is where the trumpets start uh, getting spoken of. And then Revelation 9, Revelation 10, and Revelation 11 are all the trumpet judgments. Uh, Revelation 14 is where we start talking about the, the judgment. It's just a, a description of a, of a judgment. And then Revelation 15, are the, where the bowl starts getting spoken of, and Revelation 16. So again, there is interpretations in relation to this that we can take, and, and I'll try to sort of um, brief you on, on a number of those. But again, these are fairly clear in what's occurring on the earth as they're getting done, aren't they? They're, if you've ever read through them, it's pretty straightforward what's actually happening. Now, where they all sit on in timeline is a matter of debate. But as outside of that is pretty clear what's going on. Now here is the last section that I've made, which is allegory. Um, an allegory is a story, a poem or picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning. So these are extra 
what I call extra end time visions that sort of where they fit on the time scale in relation to the trumpets and bowls and all that sort of thing that's going to be a, a quite an intriguing study to try to find where this is all sitting and what does it mean how many interpretations are there because sometimes you have a, a, an application of at the time and a future application you get all these sorts of things as well revelation 12 is the woman and the dragon anyone who, who knows revelation knows about that revelation 13 is the beast and 666 uh, then there's revelation 17 which is we, we just call it mystery babylon uh, to simplify the whole chapter and revelation 18 is the fall of babylon so these are allegorical there's a there's a fair bit of symbology going on in it um, and they're the ones that you have to be very careful when you tread that ground so that's all of them um, can you see now that it's not just symbology it's not just allegory it's not a book that you you steer clear of it's a book that's actually quite clear most of the time um, and with a bit of teaching and a bit of referencing you know to the Old Testament and also around the, the New Testament it can start to make even more and more sense as we go along so I'm going to try to do that as best I can um, over the course of this uh, uh, sermon series so the throne in heaven let's read chapter 4 it's only a short chapter and it says after this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and the voice I had first heard, which was back in chapter 1, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, so this voice sounded like a trumpet, so it must have been a very loud, penetrating voice, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. These elders were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder before the throne seven lamps were blazing and these are the seven spirits of god also before the, th the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal in the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and behind the first living creature was like a lion the second was like an ox the third had a face like a man the fourth was like a flying eagle each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around even under his wings day and night they never stopped saying holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come whenever the living creatures give glory honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever 
They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So it's a pretty clear picture, isn't it? If you, it's, it's unusual. We don't have thrones like this in, in earth, on earth where these sorts of things are uh, happening. But in heaven, you know, you've got 24 elders before the, before the throne. Um, our, um, the, the one sitting on the throne is shining like a, a precious stone. Um, you have these four living creatures with four different faces and they get covered with eyes. You know, these are unusual things, but it's a description. It's a description of what is taking place in heaven when, when John was transported there in the spirit. Many eschatologists today, and I wanted to just cover this ground straight away. Many eschatologists today believe that this passage is evidence of a secret rapture. And you're all probably thinking, unless you know this teaching, you're probably thinking, where? <laughs> they see John as a type of the rapture of the church, who is transported to heaven, when you hear the words come up here, and they create a doctrine that this is the church lifted off the planet before the first seal, because the first seal gets broken during this vision, and they're lifted off before that is broken. The voice that sounded like a trumpet is in fact the last trumpet talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52. So can you see what they've done? They've, they see John lifted up, then they say, well, John's the church. He's, he's a, a type of. So there's the church lifted up before the seals are broken. So we're gone before the Antichrist is revealed, before any of these terrible things take place. The voice sounded like a trumpet. Ah, that's the last trumpet. But was it a trumpet? Did it say the voice is a trumpet? Sounded like. You know, if I could do special effects with my voice, you know, I could probably sound like a trumpet with my voice and speak at the same time. You know, I can't even do a trumpet sound, but you know what I mean? You could sound like a trumpet. I've actually heard trumpet players singing through their trumpet. Right? So that's what it is in a sense, it's that. And the other thing is, is it was John receiving a vision. It's not speaking. Now, you've got to remember, you've got to be careful if you add something to the book of Revelation. Amen? Yes. Okay. Amen. What happens if you add something? It's added to you. It's added to you what? What are added? The plagues. The terrible things. So if you add something that's not there, there... And then teach it as doctrine and teach it to 95% of the evangelical church. You're in trouble, in my opinion. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't dare do that. So if it doesn't say, and John is the church, and the church is raptured before these seals are broken, I'd be very, very careful. Because you could be bringing great curses upon yourself. Amen. Because I like to take the Bible, literally, if it says don't add or subtract, don't add or subtract. It's a, it's a dangerous habit. <laughs> to me, this is going beyond what is written and clearly not what, is, what the passage is referencing. What is being described here is not a rapture of the church, but clearly something that happened to John in the spirit. 
where future events were revealed to him, where Jesus says, I will show you what must take place after this. The trumpet referred to here was the voice sounding like a trumpet. It had nothing to do with the last trumpet. Actually, there's only one last trumpet in Scripture because we've, we've checked it out. There's only one last trumpet. You know what it is? The seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet because there's six, six prior and that's the last one. There's no more eighth trumpet. There's no eighth trumpet. It's the last trumpet and that's what Paul was referencing. The last trumpet. The voice that sounds like a trumpet is clearly Christ. Jesus is not a trumpet, but his voice sounds like a trumpet. Actually, his voice sounds like a lot of things. I'm going to be revealing this to you today. His voice sounds like rushing waters. He's not a river. No. Right? But it sounds like. The first part of this is the door standing open in heaven. And that was the best visual I could get of that. Was this huge door. He's in heaven. This massive door that stands open breakdown of the verses verse 4 1 the open door and the trumpet voice 4 2 he sees someone on a throne 4 3 one who appears as precious stones three specific stones are mentioned 4 4 talk about the 24 elders 4 5 talks about the throne that thunders and the seven spirits of God 6 to 11 4 6 is the sea of glass before the throne and the four living creatures. Verse 7 is the lion, the ox, the man and the eagle. These living creatures and who they are. 4.8, uh, they have six wings covered with eyes and they're repeated, holy, holy, holy. Uh, 4.9 to 10 talks about the 24 elders that fall down and worship and how they, what they say when they worship. And 4.11 is worthy to receive glory for you are the creator of all. So that's a quick snapshot of the whole chapter and I think when you do it like that you can see the, the chapter so much clearer in succinct uh, order. Now the open door and the trumpet voice, Revelation 4.1. So let's read that and it says, After this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So as John was receiving the vision, he saw a door open in heaven. Jesus uses the expression of a door uh, to go through, something to go through, or a door opening um, in many places in Scripture. And when I heard, you know, when, when I read that, I thought, you know what, there are so many Scriptures that relate to doors. Jesus likes to use that analogy, that you want to get in, here's the door. Don't climb in through the window because you're a thief. Don't try to come around the back because you won't get there. There's a big fence. This is the way. There's only one way. It's through this door. And he uses this expression. And I want to sort of um, show you the different ways he uses it. And you don't have to skip there in the Bible. I've done the hard work for you. So Jesus referencing the door. This one's related to prayer. Matthew 7, 7, 8, 7 to 8. Knock on the door. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Then there's uh, the second coming. This relates to Matthew 25, 1 to 13. This is not the whole scripture, but it's about the wise and foolish virgins. You must know about that. Verse 10 says, But you, uh, so, but while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. So the foolish virgins couldn't get in. 
another one referencing the second coming is Mark 13, 28 to 29, the coming of Christ. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near. In fact, it's right at the door. Right at the door. Luke 11, 5 to 8, the persistent friend. Then the one, this is from uh, 7 to 8, then the one inside answers, don't bother me. This one's in relation to prayer, the persistent friend. The door is already locked and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread, yet because he is his friend and the man's persistence, he'll get up and give him as much as he needs. Notice the words, because he is his friend. Because you're a friend of Jesus, if you keep knocking, he'll get up and give you what you need. He'll give you the bread. So you've got to knock on that door. Amen. Second coming, Luke 12, 35 to 40. Be dressed, ready for service. This is, can you read that? Probably not, Andy. Yeah, no, I can. I you can, can read it. Oh, good. Be dressed, ready for service and keep <laughs> your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, <clears throat> wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds him them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour you do not expect him. That's, we call that the imminent return of Christ. Now, um, that imminent return of Christ is a subject that we will talk about um, because it's taken out of context, it's taken too far by certain people who talk about that Jesus can arrive at any moment. Who's heard that? Mm -hmm. Who's been in the church and say, you know, Jesus could just have us out of here now. It could happen right now. The rapture could just occur right now. There's nowhere in Scripture does it say that. That's not the meaning of the imminent return of Christ. There's actually, there's certain things that must take place before it can happen. But we'll go into that at another time. Luke 12, 24 to 25. This is in relation to salvation. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter, will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you'll stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. That sounds like Matthew 7, 21 to 23. I don't know you, but I know you. You know, now it's, it's during this life that we have an opportunity to get to know Jesus. It's during this life that we have a time to knock on that door and, and get answers. It's during this life that it all takes place. Once the second coming has occurred and is done, that's it. Time over. We've got to devote now. We can't devote then. We can't say, Lord, I want to live for you now because I can see you. It's too late. But he'll receive you right up to the time. But once he comes, end of time. And we're stuck with our sins if we haven't repented. Amen? That's a dangerous place to be. That's why I serve Jesus. That's why I get up every Sunday and I just want to do this. And I know you guys come because you want to make sure that you're ready, that you're watching, that you're waiting. You know? The door of faith. This is in Acts 14, 26 and 27. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch. Where they had been committing to the grace of God, committed to the grace of God, 
for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened up the door of faith to the Gentiles. So God opens doors to the you know, evangelistic efforts of the church. God has to open the door. So really, whatever we do for God has got to be done by knocking first, don't we? You know, open this door, Lord, open this door. Because that's how the disciples moved. If they went somewhere and they, they, could, they, they would say, the door was closed, we couldn't enter. We had to go this way and the door opened. So they were led by the Spirit in that. They knew when the Lord was behind it. Door of effective work. 1 Corinthians 16, 8-9. But I will stay on that Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. A great door of effective work. Don't we want that? We want that great door of effective work. We want people to come to know Jesus and we want it to be effective because the Lord has opened the way. The judge is at the door. This is James 5, 8 to 9. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. The judge is standing at the door. We're greeted by the judge when we go through the door. An open door. There's quite a few of these spoken of in... Um, uh, there was quite a few more references to doors in the book of Acts, but I didn't go through them. Revelation 3.8, I know your deeds. See how I've placed before you an open door. This is the, to the church of Philadelphia that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. There's been many ministers in the past where you clearly, when you read their biographies, you know that they had an open door. John Wesley was one of those, had an open door. Thousands came to know Jesus through his ministry because God had done it. But he had spent you know, years and years and years seeking God at a level most men don't seek God. And after he got baptised with the Spirit, that's or when he was moved by the Spirit after a, a time on a ship, that's when effective opportunities uh, began. But guess what? The church opposed him. He wasn't allowed to preach in any churches. He was kicked out of about 10 churches before he, he went into a field and I think because the fact that he got kicked out of so many churches, it roused a lot of interest in him. And he went into a field and preached to 10,000. Oh. Came to the field. Makes you want to get kicked out of churches. <laughs> Stands at the door and knocks. Revelation 3, 19 to 20. Who knows which church is this relating to? Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice... And opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Which church is that? Laodicea. The greatest blessing is given to the church of Laodicea. The most wretched of all the churches gets the, the big blessing. And what he's saying is, I, here I am, I stand at the door. The judge is at the door. He stands there waiting and open it. So now we have to open it to him. So it's a two-way door. You open it to him, but he also opens doors effective service. So if we get him to come in, then he'll open the door and say, I've given you an open door to effective service. And that's what we want. Now, in this same passage, it's talked about a, a voice that sounded like a trumpet. Revelation 4.1. Now, if we just go to Revelation 1.10, we'll find out who the voice is. And we know it's Jesus, but not just to take my word for it. 
uh, in this section from chapter nine, uh, verse 9 sorry, down to the end of Revelation 1, which was uh, to 20, from a, uh, 9 down to verse 20, it's speaking about one like a son of man who stands among the lampstands and, and so on. And it gives us this uh, powerful description of who we know is the Alpha and Omega, the first and last, the beginning and the end. His name is Jesus. He's the Word of God. They, they give him all the references that we know uh, Jesus gave to himself. Um, and it says in verse 10, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit. So here he is in the Spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. So he heard this voice. And then we go through the, the course of that chapter. The rest of that chapter we find out that that voice is in fact Jesus. Now let's look at rushing waters, Revelation 1.15. In that same passage, it just if you go down a bit further, we'll go down to verse 14. It says, His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. So in the same description, just not far earlier, he says his voice sounded like trumpet, and then he says his voice sounded like rushing waters. So... Whatever the, what it's saying is something extremely loud, something extremely powerful and big. You get a similar vision in, or a similar description in Ezekiel 43, verse 1 to 2. And it says, Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. Don't read any further, because um, that's it for later. But um, the voice sounded like rushing waters. So a completely different time. Ezekiel, prophet, and he hears this powerful th voice. And all he could say was, I just felt like when I was down at the, uh, the waterfalls the other day, you know, I heard this incredible roar, and that's what it sounded like when the Son of Man spoke to me. Voice like rushing waters, very, very powerful. Let's go to Job. This is where his voice sounds like thunder. Job 40, verse 9. And it says, Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like his? His voice thunders. Uh, now, let's go to Psalm 29. He's got a thundering voice. Now, this is, this is an incredible psalm. I've, I'm, I'm sure I've read this psalm, but it wasn't until I read it today that it really hit me. Go to verse 3. Psalm 29, verse 3. And it says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Now, cedar is a pretty hard tree to break. The voice of the Lord, just his voice will snap a cedar. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. 
The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. Isn't that amazing? That's one powerful voice. That's, that's our God. Now let's turn to verse 2. Four, chapter 4, verse 2. Back in Revelation. By the end of this series, you guys should know your Bibles really well. You're skipping around. If you want to cheat, do what I did. Put little tags. Or else, you know some of those old minor prophet books, they're just sort of like one or two pages and they're right in the middle of, you know, a dozen books. You can never find them. So this is good. Alright, so he sees someone, in verse 2 he sees someone on a throne. Let's go to verse 2. And at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Four times in the book of Revelation, John says he was in the Spirit. Just trust me on that, we don't have to go and look at them all. But verse 110, which we read before, verse 4-2, and 21-10. This expression indicates that John was receiving a vision, and his body was more than likely on the earth, but his spirit was with the Lord receiving a vision. Because if, if his body was there, it would have said, I was transported. Yeah. Yeah. But it says, I was in the spirit. So he indicates that he was more than likely held in a prison on Patmos. Yeah. You know, in that cave. Remember the cave we went to, John? Went to the um, cave in Patmos. We, we didn't even know where to go. We got there, we didn't ask directions. We just started walking up a hill and we found the cave. It was just sort of, God led us there. And what was funny was we were walking along this path towards this cave and I'm saying to John, this, this surface, it feels like I'm walking through Belair National Park. It really felt like Belair National Park because I've ran, I used to run up Belair all the time, three, times, three four times a week. Mm -hmm. I'm going, gee, this feels like we're in Australia in Belair National Park. And then we look up and there's gum trees everywhere. We're going, get out of here. Gum trees everywhere. It's like this is Australiana on the island of Patmos and we just cruise through and we get up and then I, and I'm, we were heading towards a castle which we called it a castle what was it a, it was a monastery it was a castle it was a castle it used to be a castle it was, yeah. it was a monastery you know the ones with the little oh, yeah. tops like that and we go oh, I've got to go up there it was right at the top of the hill everyone else thought <laughs> us and uh, we get there and there, there's John's um, the cave so he was obviously down in that cave and they, they got all this, you know, um, uh, religious stuff that they talk about in relation to the cave and there's this crack through it and that's when they, he received the vision and this cave splits and, and so on. And there's icons all through it and stuff like that. And we sat at the entrance, I sat at the entrance and John filmed me um, reading the book of Revelation, <laughs> chapter one. Yeah, I had to do that. But anyway, it was a very interesting experience to go up there. So he was obviously, because he was in prison there, so he was obviously couldn't get out, and he, I don't think God would have taken him out. God kept him there and took his spirit. He sees someone on the throne. God's throne is a place of transcendence. It's high and exalted with power and authority, majesty and honour, perfect justice, sovereignty, holiness, praise, purity, grace and eternal life. If you see his throne... You've seen the highest office in the universe. You can't go higher than the throne of Christ. The buck stops there. So he's seeing a vision and he's seeing God. And what would you do? You just fall on your face. 
you just fall on your face. And when you read of the visions from the prophets, Isaiah and, and Daniel and Ezekiel, they fall on their face. They fall down before him. Because, you know, you realise just how fragile and frail you are. You're really held together by Jesus Christ. You know, it's not, we're, we're, this is not us doing it ourselves. This is God keeping everyone alive. Every single person, whether they believe in Jesus or not, they're held together by Jesus Christ. And at a moment, it, there's a, a scripture where it says the silver cord could be um, severed. I think it's in Proverbs or Psalms, Proverbs. Proverbs. And uh, if they, that silver cord gets read, um, severed, that's it. That's it. No recourse. You go, you know, you go to either be with your Lord Jesus or your Lord Satan, whichever one you, you served. And so when you come to the throne of God, this is no small thing. This is a powerful, powerful thing. And that's why there's so much description of it here. He sees someone on a throne. Hebrews 1.3. 1 verse 3. And it says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact, the exact representation of his being. If Jesus was not God, would they say the exact representation of his being? What they're saying is he's, um, for lack of a better word, flesh of my flesh, spirit of my spirit, blood of my blood, you know, whatever. If, if, but uh, we, we say that about our own son. He's flesh of my flesh. He's my son. He's the same as human, just like I am. God is in heaven and God has a son. And he's as, as God as God is. So all these people that are trying to tell you that Christ is not God, Taken to this scripture. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. So God has a glory, and that radiance is Jesus Christ. That radiates from God the Father. And he's the exact representation of his being. He's not an angel, because an angel is a created being. He can't be an exact representation. Exact is a. What's exact mean? Absolutely, precisely. You know, um, if someone if if someone says what's one plus one and you say two, they will say exactly, exact, perfect, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's Jesus Christ. He sustains all things. He holds everything together. Everything in the universe is held together by Jesus Christ. After he had provided purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's not That right hand in heaven is not held for an angel. That right hand is held for God and his son. You know, if there was a company up there, it would be called God and Son. God and Son. And their family. We cannot be a son as Jesus is in the sense of he is God. But we can be adopted and brought in, become sons of God, which is with a little s. Meaning we're, we're, um, we, we love him and serve him, we're, we're accepted in, but we are not him. And this, there's a thing around going at the moment called that people say, I'm, I'm a little Jesus. No, you're not a little Jesus. Who's heard that term? Yeah. There was a, a, quite a few people speak about that we've become little Jesuses. That's talking about becoming godlike or becoming a god. 
We can't become little Jesus. That's the whole concept of the New Age versus Christ consciousness. A lot of churches, a lot of Christian churches are using this terminology. No, we don't become little Jesuses um, because that means we're deifying ourselves. We become like, we try to become like Jesus, don't we? We want to be like him, but we can't become him as he is. That's the teaching of Mormonism, by the way. Yeah, you can actually become Jesus, just like Jesus became a God. And God the Father was ahead of him and he became a God. And, and so God is the God of this galaxy and there's other gods in other galaxies. That's Mormonism. So when they say they're Christian, just laugh. Say, Sorry. No. There's only one Elohim. So let's go to Matthew 26. There was so much for this uh, section of scripture um, uh, through this passage. I was got, up, got on my computer this morning and started working on this sermon and completely lost track of time. I was supposed to meet Ricardo here at quarter to nine. And I, when I took my head out, who's had that experience and time doesn't exist when you're on the computer? And um, I just all this stuff came in. You should be lucky, glad that I didn't have another hour because it would have been even bigger. But um, yeah, all this stuff was coming. But we got, we made it, didn't we, Ricardo? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Twenty-six, sixty-four, and it says, "Yes, it is as you say." Jesus replied, "But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming." On the clouds of heaven. Psalm 11.4. So Jesus is sitting at where? The right hand. People say there is that when a Christian dies, they don't go to heaven. Who's heard that teaching? Yes. Yeah. A lot of people are saying. But where does it say he is? He's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And what did he say? I'm going there to prepare a place for you. So when a Christian dies, where do they go? To the place he's prepared for us. In heaven. And then... It's not until later, when we receive our imperishable bodies on the return of Christ, that heaven and earth become one and we dwell on earth as it is in heaven. It will be the earth as it is in heaven. It will be here. Amen. Amen. Now, that's just uh, one simple you know, explanation. But it's amazing how many people and intelligent Christians that read the scriptures get, come to the conclusion that, there is, that we don't go to heaven. Um, but it's not true. We do go to heaven. Absolutely. They say we go to... I think I, spent, I talked about this a week or two ago. That we, um, the people who died in Jesus or before Jesus, they died in God. They went into Abraham's bosom. And um, that place was where they were held for it until Jesus had died on the cross to set them free and lead the captives in, in his train to heaven. So all of those that had died in Jesus before um, he came... Are with him in, Jesus, uh, in in heaven, and that's exactly where we go because we're in his train now, aren't we? Mm -hmm. And we follow him where he is. We will be. Mm -hmm. All right, Psalm eleven four. Who's enjoying this study of Revelation? Yes. Eleven four. The Lord is is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne, heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. Now that should Shake us up. He's up there, but his eyes are on the sons of men. They're examining us. He's observing. How would you be if, you know, uh, you had a friend who, and, and, or even a, a manager or a boss or someone who's 
Everywhere you go, he's watching you. Would you get a little bit, you know, like paranoid? You'd get paranoid, wouldn't you? Because every move you make, like I said, you know, a lot more people would be more well behaved if a police officer walked around with them, you know, 24-7. And a police officer was examining you, watching every move you make. Now we have the God of gods, the King of kings, who says and tells us that we're not out of his sight. We get away with zero. So that's why a Christian should live such an impeccable life, because he is conscious of that mm. fact. Amen. Let's go to 1 Kings 22.19. Turn there. Who likes using Bibles or phones? Who's a, who's a phone fan for searching the Bible? Yep. I like using it. You can get around pretty quick, don't you? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's good to use the book as well because it's... Um, but if you go through my Bible, you'd be flicking the pages and they'll be falling out on you. <laughs> 22.19, we're all there. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the hosts of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. That he saw, this was during the time of King Ahab with his wicked wife Jezebel. And around this time, um, uh, Elijah was present and Elisha. And uh, Micah, the prophet, saw... Uh, said he saw the Lord sitting on his throne with the host of heaven. And it goes on, if you read the story, it's fascinating because um, spirits come before him and say what they're going to do to, you know, uh, lure Ahab and, and all the people at that time um, into, you know, to do a certain thing that they want, uh, that God wanted them to do. So read that at, uh, when you get a bit of time. It's a fascinating story. But he saw him on the throne. God is on his throne. I remember I, uh, an old friend of mine who used to be a Christian and he turned away from Jesus and he was a very, very uh, strong Christian. He used to preach at a church we used to belong to and then he gave up Christianity because he had tithed for 10 years and wasn't any better off. And he was told that if he tithed consistently that God would pour out a blessing. And I saw the damage that did to this guy after 10 years. He turned away from Christ. So that's why I don't teach prosperity. I won't go near it. I even will encourage people who come to this church not to give. <laughs> because I just think it's, look, uh, it's got to be your heart conviction. Look, sure, the church needs money to go forward. But we also need more faith than money. Amen. We need more faith. And I think prosperity of soul is comes in many different forms and, it's, and finance is just one of the small ways it comes. Because sometimes the richest people among us can be the most wretched. Yeah, poorest in the spirit as well. I'm not saying all rich people are wretched. Either. I'm not saying that. Um, anyway, so that's uh, in 1 Kings. Let's go to Isaiah. This is a powerful one. Who likes the book of Isaiah? Yeah, 6-1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then it goes into, and I don't want to read too far, but he had a very similar vision to what John had, where he saw seraphs, and he gives them a name, seraphs. Seraphs, each with six wings. And they were a little bit different. 
Two covered their faces, two covered their feet, and with two they were flying. So at that time they were covered. When John saw them, they were outstretched. So it's like sealed vision, revealed vision. Let's go to Ezekiel 126. 126, and it says, Above the expanse, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of sapphire. A throne of sapphire. It's always these beautiful stones. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that the man appeared to be, his waist up was glowing metal, as if it were full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Does that sound like what John saw? Feet of burnished bronze, eyes of fire, like the appearance of a rainbow. Didn't we just read that in Revelation 4? In the clouds on a rainy day, so it was the radiance around him. So very similar descriptions. They're describing these are hundreds of years apart, and we see similar descriptions to what John is talking about. Let's go to Daniel 7, 9 to 10. I think this is one of my favourite passages in Daniel. 7, 9 to 10, and it says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the ancient of days, I love that name. Don't, who loves that name? The ancient of days. What's that saying? He's been around forever, and he'll be around forever. He's ancient, ancient, but he still looks fantastic. He's God. Thought I'd add that for us that are getting older. You know, one day we'll look fantastic. Again. <laughs> you look like a 30-year-old. Yeah, that's right. So that's what they say. Continuously at 30. Yeah, I believe that. I really look better in my 20s, though. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Let's read this description. His clothing was white as snow. Hair of his head was white like wool. Where's that? Was that in Revelation 1? Yep. His throne was flaming with fire. A flaming throne. And its wheels were all ablaze. And the river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand. Now, these are some of the biggest numbers they had in those days. And what they're trying to say is billions and whatever. Billions and billions. <laughs> And the court was seated, and get this, the books were open. Where is that also written? In the book of Revelation, the book of life. The books were open. That scares me. That keeps me Christian. Amen. That keeps you Christian. You just, you'd be standing there, and I, I tell you, when, when um, no matter how close you are to God on earth, no matter how much you serve Him and, and, and how much you love Him and all that, when you get there and you have to stand there and they, the angels and Jesus says, is their name in the book? You'd just be going, it's, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's got to be there, it's there. You know, a little bit of doubt, it's got to come in, you know what I mean? You'd have that little bit of a, oh man, God, please put my name in that book, you know? Because your name has to be in the book. If it's not in the book, and you're standing there, that's it. It's got to be in the book. So make sure your name's in the book. And you do that when? Now. Now. We've got to have our name in the book today. 
I might recap on what I said, I think it was last week, about, they talk about, that um, I will never erase your name from the book, and people try to talk, talk that one away, as if once saved, always saved is true, you can't get your name erased, it's impossible, because once saved, always saved is a doctrine of truth. I don't believe that. And he wouldn't have used the word erase if erasing wasn't possible. Mm. And the other thing is, when a baby is born, does a baby, if the baby dies, does the baby go to heaven? Yeah, and if every single baby on, who's ever been born in the history of the earth, if they had died at infancy, would they go to heaven? Yes, absolutely. But does that mean that when they get to 20 and become people of age, that they now have their names erased because they've decided not to follow Jesus or believe in Jesus? Yeah. So if everyone has their name there, because if everyone goes to heaven, that means their name must be in the Bible, um, in the Book of Life. And if at a later date they can, you know, become accountable, and then they have, and then they're no longer have their name there. That means the name is erased. Every name, I believe, this is my own personal. You can prove me wrong in it, um, but my own personal um, uh, what's the word, conviction on this matter is that all names are there to begin with. The moment the baby is sent, that baby is not, you know, no partiality is shown. He's, the baby's there. The name's there. And after that, we do with it what we do. And I'm sure you could do this. You could get your name erased and then later you can get your name put back in through turning to Jesus Christ. Because, you know, some people are brought up in atheist households and they just lean, end up leaning that way and then they lose their, that name and then later they turn to Jesus Christ. This is like me. There was a point where I, my name wasn't there because I refused to believe in Jesus. Um, at one point for a short time but um, only because it just sounded like rubbish to me because I was, an, I was brought up atheist even though I wasn't, didn't have atheism preached on me at home but then when I got to 21 that's when I saw the truth anyway Revelation 3.21 let's go to that as the last one in this screen uh, 3.21 to him who overcomes I will give the right to sit with me on my throne so we hear that Jesus Christ is on a throne. Here we are offered at the end of uh, the ch seven churches to the church of Laodicea the right to sit with him on his throne. So that same throne is offered to us. I tell you, if the throne was on fire when he said, come and sit up here with me, I'd be saying, Lord, are you sure? I need an imperishable body. But... We can sit on the throne with Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? That's a beautiful, the most beautiful uh, promise in Scripture. Now, I want to just shoot through one last thing. And uh, I'll finish with this on precious stones. Verse 4-3. I just want to try to finish with verse 4-3. I was hoping to get to verse 4, which was talking about the 24 elders, but I, I won't be able to today. But let's just uh, shoot through verse 3. And some interesting stuff here. And it says, And the one who sat there had the appearance of a jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Stones are precious. Actually, men prize stones as jewels of great value and place great prices on them. Bill works uh, as a jeweller, or not a jeweller as such. What would you call yourself? He assesses jewellery yeah. and, and, 
and buys and sells jewellery. So if he knows he knows a fake stone from a real stone and all this sort of stuff, and but he knows that stones are precious. Stones of all kinds are precious. When Jesus was described in the colours of stones, or in the nature of stones, maybe, it was a reflection of the deep richness and awe-inspiring beauty that men and women see in these stones. When I say men, please understand, um, it's men and women. It's just mainly men. women. Mainly women. <laughs> yeah, mainly women. True in this context. Because I really, I like the look of a stone, but, you know, pay two grand for it, no way. <laughs> and I'm glad my wife doesn't care that much about stones and all that. It's, kept, it's made me a little bit richer. <laughs> but it had an appearance of a jasper. And that's a jasper. Looks like a uh, Greek red, red egg. Because what the Greeks do on... Um, Easter, they call it Pascha, as in Passover. What do they call it in Italian? Pasqua. 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 Basically, Passover. Um, we don't, they don't call it Easter over there. But um, anyway, that jasper stone. Oh, hang on. Uh, in relation to that, they make a, a, what they do is they, they get an actual chicken egg, they dye them red to symbolize the blood. Of blood. And then you have these egg fights and you eat them. But it, basically, they use egg to signify new life, mm. as in life. Mm. And you know, so that's, I like the tradition because I love protein in eggs. <laughs> <laughs> and people are like doing having a fight with you and then they put them down. I can't eat that. I'll pass it over here. <laughs> End up with about, you know, six to eight eggs overdosing. But that's Jasper. I forgot. I've really got to get a new bowl for that thing. Remind me. Interesting notes about the jasper. I, I, what I did, I did some searching, and when you start searching up stones, you get all these kooks that believe stones have all these healing properties, you know, all this sort of stuff, right? Um, I don't know. If you believe all that stuff, uh, please uh, come and have a talk to me later. I don't believe that stuff. But what I found was interesting was some of the things that has been traditionally held for thousands of years to be what they see that or view these stones. It's interesting we see it in Jesus Christ. Red jasper is a form of chalcedony, which is in turn is a form of quartz. This means that it is present all over the world. So it's present all over the world. You'll find a jasper stone everywhere as quartz, in, and it's one of the most commonly occurring minerals in the Earth's crust. There is virtually nowhere on Earth in which you could not find at least some jasper. There's nowhere on earth where Jesus can't reach. He's everywhere. He's the jasper stone. He's the everywhere stone. You know, the rock. And he, remember, he's referred to himself as the rock. And so using these stones as representative of him. And I found that an interesting point. Now, the guy who made this point in this website, I, I didn't get his name, but um, that wasn't what he was referring to it as. He was referring to it from a different perspective. He's just talking about some... Um, known facts about the Jasper Stone. But it represents the blood of Christ, and this was actually written in another section. It represents the blood. It is also said to be sacred to the Apostle Peter. That's what they believe. Uh, back from the last 2,000 years, they've seen it, the rock, for the strength and solid foundation that he lent to the church. And today, Red Jasper is as popular as ever and is widely available and relatively inexpensive. 
Is salvation relatively inexpensive? Yes. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So that's what I saw when I started studying just a little bit about the Jasmus time. This is why I nearly was late, Ricardo. I was doing this. And then there's the carnelian, and you can't see it properly there. It's sort of a, a bit more red or even orange, browny red. Interesting notes about it is many people today and throughout history have believed that the carnelian stone gives abundant physical powers. This is like thousands of years they've believed this about the stone, and like we don't believe it, do we? Like a stone doesn't give us these powers, but it's just interesting because Jesus saw himself as that. And he's... These words are read by people who believe these things about these stones. So if you imagine if someone who gets converted, they read that Jesus refer, refers to himself as a, or had the appearance of a carnelian, and they believe something about the carnelian, they start to identify with Jesus Christ. Uh, they believe the carnelian stone gives abundant physical powers to warriors to conquer their enemies or to stop plagues, inspire creativity, increase power and stamina, bring success and soothe and clarify the mind. But that this, what I was reading about the carnelian, it's like the prime stone in these guys that um, push stones on, you know, as a physical healing or something. Um, but it's just interesting as we look at that. Rainbow resembling an emerald, you can sort of see it there. It's uh, interesting notes. According to ancient folklore, putting an emerald under your tongue would help one see into the future. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What about just ask God? Because only God can tell the future, not an emerald. No. But when you refer it to Jesus as the emerald, rainbow, he is the future. And if you put him on your tongue, the words of Christ, you get the spirit of prophecy. Do you know what I mean? That's how it should be related, not this stupid way from the way they said. Emeralds were thought to guard against memory loss and enhance intuition. That's good. So Jesus will guard you against memory loss and enhance intuition. Emeralds was believed to act as a type of truth potion. I like that. They reckon they used to give it uh, when a man and a woman would get married, they would give the stone to the woman to see if she's been faithful and all this sort of stuff. A truth potion. But is Jesus, is he, a, you know, he, 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 there's no secrets. You know, he knows the truth about who we are. We can't hide anything from Jesus. The soft, calming colour of the emerald helped early lapidaries. And lapidaries are, um, relates to stone and gems and the work involved in engraving, cutting and polishing. So when they're engraving, cutting and polishing stones all day, they put it, um, they rest their eyes with them. So they actually found that if they put these stones on their eyes after a hard day's work, that their eyes would uh, ease the pain that they would receive from hard work. And they reckon even today it relieves eye strain. Now, I don't know much about all that, right? God created it. If, it, if anything good comes of a stone or whatever, uh, the point is, is God created that stone. And it's not to be worshipped, it's just something special, it's just the nature. You know, foods, the foods do good things for us. Yes. You know, there's foods you can eat and make you feel well. Yes. You know, God made sure of that. But the point is this, God, Jesus Christ, can calm your, and, 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 and help us um, with our eyes, our vision, our future. You know, loss of vision is a terrible thing to happen to a Christian, isn't it? If you lose vision, if you lose sight, if you don't know where you're going anymore in Christ, if everything becomes a blur, 
that's a bad place to be. So this is important that we look to Jesus Christ in this. And our top quality emeralds can be worth more than diamonds. So Jesus is worth more than anything. Anything. Amen. So that's how I sort of took, took that uh, bit of teaching. I hope that's been a blessing to you. One who appraises precious stones, just to finish... God dwells in unapproachable light. We know that. God is described in terms of the reflected brilliance of precious stones. The rainbow is a fit emblem because he was surrounded by a rainbow um, of that covenant of promise which God has made with Christ as the head of the church and with all his people in him. You know, it, it's like a, a covenant of grace, that covenant of peace, this covenant of faithfulness, and that's Jesus Christ. You know, his word is true. Amen. You know, he, he, he said after the flood that I will never rain like this again and never destroy the earth like this again. And the sign that he put in the sky was the rainbow. Do we still see him today? Yes. And we still see him. They're amazing. Sometimes you can see the most magnificent rainbows. Um, and Jesus having that rainbow got nothing to do with gay pride. That's what they'll try to tell you. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with that. It's got to do with his faithfulness. His promise stands firm that if we look to Him, live for Him, follow Him, He'll keep us. He'll keep us. And on that day when we move from this life to the next, He'll be there with waiting with open arms. And as we enter in through that narrow door, Amen. Has that been a blessing to you? Hope you enjoyed that. I've enjoyed doing the study, and uh, there's some really good stuff coming up in this in this actual chapter. Some real interesting things. So I hope it. I hope you can come next week and, and hear a bit more about all this. But Lord, we just thank you for this time now. And I thank you that you've uh, um, just opened up to us um, uh, some truth from your word. And I thank you, Lord, that uh, you are a faithful God. That you're a covenant-keeping God. And Lord, that there is a rainbow around you that um, is evidence to us that you, you've saved us and that we're uh, in... You'll keep us in the palm of your hand and we we'll, uh, never, never will you throw us out of your palm as long as we cling to you with everything within us. If we remain in you and you remain in us, we'll ask what, you, what we will and it will be done for us. Yes. But the word also says if we don't remain in you, you'll pick us up thrown in the fire and we'll be burned. And so Lord, help us to remain. Mm. Help us to be a faithful people that never move, never move from you, but stay focused on you every single day. So I pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. And Lord, be with us now, be with us this weekend, and uh, may you uh, just uh, bless the, uh, the rest of this day and the rest of this week. And thank you for the way that you're working in us and in this church. I pray that um, blessings upon all of us, cover us all in your precious blood, and put your angels around us and carry us through this week and bring us back together next week in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Now, we, um, Vina's Greek, if you didn't know that. Vina's Greek, and uh, Greek Easter is this weekend. Um, so we're, we're going to, we have to sort of, um, sort of pack up fairly soon, because we've got a, a lamb on the spit waiting for us. Oh, wow. Uh, a few hours. Yes. Um, do you want us to save you some meat? There'll be plenty. I'll have it for you for next week. But, um... So please pray for us that we don't overeat. Yeah.
I'll, I'll be dosing up on eggs first, and then lamb. And the salad gets a little plate, place on my plate. Alright, God bless you all. No worries.